Our passage this morning comes from the book of Job, chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. And I am getting ahead of myself, and I will nevertheless um, let, we will let that be. Just to remind you, since it's been several weeks since um, we have gathered rather around the word in Job, just to remind you where we are, uh, there has been a great deal of suffering on the part of Job. He's lost his wealth. He has lost his health. He has lost his children. And that in such a way that it looks very much like the arm of God is laid heavy upon him. And he has three friends that have come. They've gathered around him. And from this passage today, well, actually, uh, yes, from this passage today, we will see that, that these are friends of great wisdom, of, of great age, that they are older than he is. And they have gathered to comfort him and to encourage him. But one of the worst strokes that Satan uses against Job is to make this instrument of comfort and consolation and, and fellowship to also be a grievous test of his devotion unto his Lord. Now, it is perhaps helpful that we be reminded of the controversy between Job and his friends. Uh, Job, and also the controversy between God and Satan. Uh, Satan has contended that once God's blessings are pulled from Job, that he would curse the Lord. That his love for the Lord, his loyalty to the Lord, his devotion to the Lord, was only because he was benefited by that devotion. But we see here, and what we will see through the book of Job, because I don't think it's bad that we get spoiled of the ending before we get to it, is that Job perseveres. That Job doesn't understand what's going on. Job doesn't understand, it is, as far as we know, never let in on the, the controversy between God and Satan, the reason for his trial. But what Job does is recognize that if he is to have any good, it is going to come from God himself. And so he never forsakes his Lord. And this is what he has established already in three responses, his own prayer to God, then his responses to the contention of his friends and his prayers, even in those times to the Lord himself. His friends also speak very good doctrine and very good truth, but they err. And the Lord has said in chapter 42 that they err and they commit sin and they require Job to intercede on their behalf. But the error isn't so much in what they say, it's how and where and what they apply what they say. Or maybe perhaps also the lack of what they say. In their mind, suffering only comes from the judgment of God. That it serves no other purpose. And therefore the innocent cannot suffer, uh, which is an error. But it leads them to assume, without any evidence, that Job cannot be as sincere and with the integrity that he seems to have, but that his sufferings have discovered to all the world that he is a vile hypocrite, that his children in their fellowship were struck down in sin and utterly wiped out, and that he himself suffers 
because he deserves it. And this, Job's conscience cannot assent to. Job is not asserting his uh, righteousness uh, in the sense of his absolute purity. But he, as we have seen already, he acknowledges himself to be a sinner. But he, inser- he asserts the integrity of his devotion, his faith in the Lord God. And he, we see that worked out. We come now to the re- second round of three rounds of, of rebukes from Job's friends. And we come back around to his first friend, the eldest, perhaps, of the group, Eliphaz. And we will look only at the first uh, section of what he has to say here uh, this morning, uh, just the first 13 verses. Uh, but, uh, but we will remind ourselves that though what Eliphaz says does not apply to Job, what Eliphaz will say is good to hear. And so we will hear with the heart of charity and grace and take our rebuke as we ought and, and contemplate the importance of Eliphaz's words even if they are twisted uh, in the situation with Job. Before I read our passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. We come, Father, to look at uh, the book of Job that your Holy Spirit inspired, that is one of the great monuments of, of wisdom in the prophets and the apostles. And we also know it's a hard book. We also know that it dwells uh, earnestly on subjects that we, uh, that we, given our own desire, would turn away from. We ask, dear Lord, that you would hold our attention. We pray that your Holy Spirit, as he gave this word and kept it for us, to, that we might be infallibly instructed by it, uh, that he would dwell in our hearts, so that we might receive this word to the intent that it is given, uh, that it might uh, draw us to yourself, that it might expose our own sin that we might not live in it longer and that we might out of our love and devotion to you put it aside we ask dear lord that your word would bear fruit in our lives of repentance of faith in christ and obedience to him and this we pray in his name amen here now the reading of god's holy word from the book of job chapter 15 verses 1 through 13 Then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thy iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thy own mouth condemneth thee, not I. Yea, thy own lips testify against thee. Art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before the hills? Hast thou heard the secret of God? And dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? What knowest thou that we know not? What understandest thou which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and the very aged men, much elder than thy father. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Why doth thy heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at, that thou turnest thy spirit against God, and lettest such words go out of thy mouth? The grass withers, 
and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. We see here in this passage, and it's quite evident as we read, that Eliphaz's first assault upon Job, and this is an assault upon Job that at least from Eliphaz's heart is well meant. This is an assault to, uh, to shame him, to give him to see the, uh, the iniquity that Eliphaz opposes is in the heart of Job. And he's focusing on Job's words. Now, we should understand that when we speak of words, we're not just speaking of the, the syllables and the sounds and the vibrations that appear out of our mouth, that which is safe for our mouth and our tongue and all of that together. But what words really are and their power is that it is also our reason, our thinking, our, the expressions of what is inside us. Uh, that is the great power, the communicative power of words. Uh, They communicate, they share what would otherwise be hidden and what otherwise would be unknown. As the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians in his the first epistle, chapter two, uh, who knows the mind that is within man except the spirit that is within him? And therefore uh, he goes, and how could we know the mind of God if his spirit did not reveal himself to us? But this is an emotional case. And Job has spoken with great emotion and distress. And we might ask ourselves why Eliphaz would fix upon this his words. Because what are words in the heat of affliction? We're often very forgiving of such things. In fact, we've already looked that that Job, even though he is the one commended by God, perhaps began with hot expressions. Expressions that he himself, as we saw in his very uh, first opening up of his heart, as he was opening himself, he pulled back and, and would qualify and restrict that he was even conscious in the midst of his infliction that he was in danger of, of going beyond what is proper. And out of compassion, should we not, should we not ourselves... Um, uh, be careful and let certain things slide. I think Eliphaz, if you take his position with charity, uh, that if you take his motives as far as we can discern them, is right to bring forth Job's words here. If Job was, as Eliphaz thought, uh, doing, uh, saying things blasphemous and destructive of piety. And Eliphaz, complaining against Job's words, his reasoning, uh, can be summed up in three basic uh, uh, points. His first two verses, uh, verses two and three of his speech, he reproves Job of using vain and unprofitable words. Uh, He compares them, vain knowledge, that is, knowledge of the wind, uh, or knowledge that is like the wind, that comes and it goes. And we've already seen this word vanity in the book of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't mean emptiness. It doesn't mean, uh, it has that connotation in Greek, but it doesn't have that connotation in the Hebrew. Uh, it, it has to do with what is temporary. It might serve a point in, a, in its place and time, but it is nothing to be rested upon. We don't build upon the wind. Uh, we don't uh, set our... Uh, the substantial weighty things upon what is air and breath. And Job's words were like this. They were unsubstantial. He filled his belly with the east wind, that is the hot wind, the heat 
of the moment, the, uh, the stormy wind and rage. He is uh, accusing Job of giving himself to his passions. And passions are, uh, are we, we value the passions today in a way that perhaps is not terribly wise. It certainly wasn't valued in the wisdom of, of old times. That his talk is unprofitable. And, and they don't do good. But not, not just that. That's the first thing. His, his language is vain and unprofitable. But not just that. It actually cultivated a wicked ungodliness or impiety. Not only in himself but in others. Verse 4. Really verse 4, 5, and 6. You cast off fear. What fear? The fear of God. The fear of God that would make us hesitant to say what is not proper of God. That fear of God that loved and valued His glory and therefore would halt in case we actually did something against that glory. The fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. That fear of God that puts God at the center of our lives and constructs our lives around that foundation. Those things Eliphaz thought Job was casting off. And even worse, he was restraining prayer before God. I think your uh, translations focus on meditation, uh, but hindering it. And the idea is not only that his words were destructive to his own piety in the fear of the Lord, but that his words, if, were, if they were sanctified, if they were normalized, if they were preached abroad, they would cause men, other men, to lay off the fear of God and therefore... It would the, the prayers unto the Lord would falter and cease. That not only was Job's words unprofitable, they were dangerous. And dangerous not only to Job himself, but to others as well, because they uttered forth iniquity. Uh, they were crafty, verse 5. Uh, they were self-condemning. And they testified against his, his heart and his wisdom. This was part of the evil of Job's words. Remember Job chapter 9 verse 22. One of the contentions of Job was that you could not judge God's favor by providence. And this was very dangerous to the patriarchs at that time. Remember Moses has not yet written uh, the Pentateuch. If as best we can determine uh, Job and his friends lived in that time in which Israel sojourned in Egypt. There was no written word of God. And so the promises that we had was passed down and then the light of nature. And if God couldn't be known by these men who were not the, the direct line of the people of God, except by providence, then that had to have a certain authority to it. And it was, it was we can imagine how Eliphaz would hesitate and balk at saying that the, the way of God with mankind wasn't an absolute revelation. But even he would acknowledge that the innocent suffer because he believes that there are tyrants and he believes that there are oppressors and that they will be judged. And if the oppressor is unjustly oppressing, then there are those who are unjustly oppressed. And, and Job takes it also as wisdom that the wicked do prosper in the world. That the good suffer in the world and therefore Suffering cannot just be God's way of punishing iniquity. But you have to have other purposes for it. 
Job gropes for this, but we find that the purpose itself lives out in Job. That he comes to a clearer faith in the goodness of his God. He comes to a clearer understanding of the promises of the Lord and the hope that the Lord holds out to him that would not have been possible did he not suffer. But Eliphaz sees it as destructive talk. That it is dangerous talk. And he thinks he knows where it comes from. He thinks he has it pegged down that Job is exalting his own understanding against not just God, but the wise neighbors, against all the wisdom of the ancients, that Job is preferring his own mind to anything else, and that he is stubborn in his own pride. And this is his third, third complaint. He exalts himself over the wise and even God in verses 7 through 13. Art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before uh, the hills? Hast thou heard the secret of God? Dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? And here we, we see an echo of what later Solomon would say about the eternal wisdom of God. Uh, that, that, that she was there when the worlds were created. That she is before the foundations of the hills and of the earth. Is Job exalting himself even over God's own wisdom? What knowest thou that we know not? What understandest thou which is not in us? With us are both gray-headed and very aged men, much elder than thy father. Job, by the way, is a a man here that has adult children. And here are three friends that, that are older than his father. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Why doth thy heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at, that thou turnest thy spirit against God? And let us such words go out of thy mouth. Here Eliphaz would have, would have Job see his good. That he is being stubborn and defensive. And, and that he doesn't recognize where his hope lies. The last speech before Job has taken up the case is the speech of Zophar in chapter 11. And Zophar ends well if, if the diagnosis was well. In chapter 11, verses uh, 13 through 20, Zophar gives a beautiful a, a commendation of God's mercy to the penitent, uh, to the very wicked. He says, though you are so wicked as you are, if you would prepare thy heart and stretch out thy hands toward him, if iniquity be in thy hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then thou shalt lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear, because thou shalt forget thy misery and remember it as the waters that pass away. Thy age shall be clearer than at noonday, and thou shalt shine forth, and thou shalt be as the morning. Thou shalt be secure, because there is hope. Thou shalt dig about thee, and thou shalt take thy rest in safety. Thou shalt lie down, and none shall make thee afraid. Yea, many shall make suit unto thee. But the eyes of the wicked shall fail, and they shall not escape, and their hope shall be in the giving up, as the giving up of the ghost. You can't put the grace of repentance in any clearer language. Uh, the, the, the gospel, the apostles, speak of repentance as that by which we find that life. That is the exercise of faith in turning from the world and unto God that gets the life that God has given where our sins are remembered no more and is put as far away as the east and the west. And here, in the wisdom that predates the written word, 
we have, of course, this is the written word. This was written down later. But Zophar was already teaching that, that repentance brings life. And Eliphaz would have Job dwell on that and not put it away so hasty. Although we should note as well that what Eliphaz is doing is a little bit of his own defensiveness against his own wisdom. Because in their dispute, Job has called to question their motives. Uh, in chapter 12, verses 2 through 5, Job says, No doubt that ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I'm not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? In other words, Job wasn't denying what they were teaching. But they weren't listening to Job, and he wants them to move forward. I am as one mocked as his neighbor, who God calls and answers him, the just, upright man that is laughed to scorn. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. You despise me when you should have compassion and help me. Or chapter 13, verses 2 through 5. What know ye the same that I... Uh, the same that I know also. I'm not inferior to you. Surely I would speak to the Almighty and desire to reason with God, but ye are forgers of lies. You're all physicians of no value. Oh, that you would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. By their, their obstinate, not hearing what he says, they have turned their truth into deception. And of course, Eliphaz would rise up against that because... Even as he accuses Job of a prideful obstinacy, we see in his friends a certain prideful obstinacy. But here in this exposition of the passage, we see also the doctrine of the passage, that words matter. Your words matter. Words matter because for several things, and these are things that, that Eliphaz are touching upon, that they're bringing out a heart of iniquity. And they do. That's what words do. As I mentioned before, words communicate. Words take the invisible things of the inside of man and they make them outside of man. Not always perfectly, not always truly. But that is their goal, that is their use, that is their purpose. And that is also why they are so dangerous. And they have to be reined in because man is naturally not innocent. And he is a sinner. So James, the Apostle, in chapter 3, verse 2, says, For in many things we offend all. And if any man offend not in word, the same guy is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. If he could control his tongue, we could be assured of his sanctification. In verses 5 through 12, he says, Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasts great things, even as the rudder of the ship and things that he's mentioned before. Behold, how great a matter a little fire it kindleth, and the tongue is a fire. A word of iniquity, so is the tongue amongst our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and bird, and serpent, and things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It's in his body, and he can't tame it. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith we bless God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, who are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. That the fountain send forth at the same time sweet and bitter water. Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. 
as Jesus said, you'll know the tree by its fruits. Uh, it is an indicator, a barometer of our heart. And that's why the tongue matters. And that's why words matter. An uncontrolled tongue brings out a hypocritical religion. It makes it evident. In James chapter 1, verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious... By all appearances, he's like as the Pharisees were, holy people. But he bridles not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. That man's religion is vain. And remember, vanity is something that will not last and does not bring profit or value. But words not only can make our religion vain and, and expose the iniquity of our heart, they work deception. In the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, verse 1, we use a word that Eliphaz is using against Job. Uh, the serpent, it was more crafty than any other beast. And how does it beguile Eve into eating the fruit? And, and in, through Eve, beguiles Adam of violating that direct commandment of God. Through the subtlety of words, through false promises, through speech, calling into question God's own words. It is a, a great evil. If you look at uh, Timothy, First uh, Timothy chapter 6, Paul uh, giving instructions for Timothy to put things in order in the church, and he speaks about the importance of words. If any man teach otherwise than the good words I have taught you, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, what is he? He is proud, knows nothing. But doting about questions and strife of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmising, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. They are wicked and evil and destructive. Are in Romans chapter 16, verse 18, put a bit more succinctly. Paul writes, For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, what are they doing? They deceive the hearts of the simple. Words can be dangerous. And they work offense. As Eliphaz says, it restrains prayer. It, it leads others to put off that good that they ought to be doing. It leads them astray. So Paul will write also in Romans chapter 14 of the grave dangers of causing offense. He says in chapter 9, For this end Christ both died and rose and revived, in 14 verse 9, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why does you judge? Why do you condemn thy brother? Or why do you set it not thy brother? We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Verse 19, Let us therefore follow after those things which make for peace, and things whereof we should edify one another. And Paul is speaking here primarily not of works, but of words. Because they are important. And because they can deceive and give offense, words are, will weigh in judgment. We read this morning, chapter 12, verses uh, 37, uh, 36 and 37 of Matthew 12. 
when he gives this very sobering warning, I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now, in the history of the church, idle words have been interpreted differently. I don't think that, that the notion of certain uh, very strict and godly men is necessarily operative here, that everything we say has to have a certain solemnity and seriousness about it. We find even in Scripture a certain lightheartedness in its proper place. Jesus Christ uh, would not have turned the water into wine at the wedding of Cana if, if there wasn't a time and a place for joyous, exuberant words, because as we well know, uh, wine tends to, to loosen those lips there. But it is to note that there is a time and place for things. And when we put ourselves to contemplate the divine majesty, it is not the time for lightness of speech and a whimsical uh, a following after our own uh, notions and, and thoughts, and certainly not to bring them to expression, but to rather bridle them. When we think of sin, sometimes it is our own hearts that wish to excuse us that makes light of those things. And that is not proper. These are the things that Jesus is speaking of. And he tells us that all of those things, idly spoken, will be used in judgment. That they will be brought to bear upon us. It is the reason why in Romans, and one of the reasons why we confess our faith together, uh, that it sounds so odd to our years because we focus so much upon faith and we don't really see the connection sometimes that is there between our faith and our words uh, that ought to be there. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Understand, in Paul's mind, he's thinking Hebraically, he's not saying two different things. He's saying the same thing twice, in different ways. Yes, the heart is devoted to God, but how do we know the heart except through the communication of speech? And if our heart is devoted to God, then our speech will be as well. And if we are ashamed to bring forth our devotion to God in speech, then it means that in our heart we are ashamed to be devoted to Him. That they go together. And we ought not to shrink back from confessing our Lord Jesus Christ. They are bound together. Words matter. And therefore, words matter even in the heat of affliction. You are to guard your words as you guard your soul. Because in Scripture, at least in the apostolic testimony and the testimony of the sages of old and the testimony of the prophets as we have seen and the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is the very Word of God, words matter. And your words and your soul go together. When God the Father gave us His Word, He wasn't giving us something that didn't matter. He gave us His very heart. He gave us His very image. He gave us His very Son. Certainly, when Jesus is called the Word, the Logos of God, it's figured to speech. But that means that it's important speech and meaningful speech. And there is a connection between Word and everything else. So you have to beware. Beware of the craftiness of words. 
You know, Job himself gave, him, uh, gave, gave word to his own shortcomings. We can read them just as Eliphaz heard them in chapter 9, uh, verses 19 through 21. If I speak of strength, lo, he is strong, that is the Lord of judgment. He who shall set me time to plead with him. In other words, I'm not equal to him. If I justify myself, my own mouth shall condemn me. I'm not trying to do so. If I say I'm perfect, it shall prove me perverse. Though I were perfect, yet even then I would not know my soul. I would despise my life. That was the language of Job. That was the humility of Job. It is Eliphaz's speech that condemns him. When he says, Thy mouth uttereth iniquity, and chooseth the tongue of the crafty. Thy own mouth condemneth thee, and not I, yet thy own lips go against me. It is Eliphaz that is causing and heaping up offense. It is he whose words convict him. Because he is using the truth in a wicked, wicked way. He has become the serpent in the garden. He is becoming uh, the one that would use crafty words to condemn a man that knows his own innocence. Yeah, we ought to give heed to the voice of the ancients to experience. But ultimately, our allegiance is with the word of God. David in Psalm 119 verse 100 says, I understand more than the ancients. Not because he is... Uh, greatly wise. He doesn't have that same gift that his son will have. But because I keep thy precepts. Because I'm listening to you first and foremost. Because that is where my hope and my foundation is. That's why Paul tells uh, Timothy to let no one despise thy youth. Because you're being built up. You have the Holy Spirit. You're teaching the word of God. That's what matters. It puts everything else in perspective. So we have to beware of the craftiness of words that can take even good things, like it takes Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, and turns them into wicked things. Like the serpent that took the good tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an evil tree in the Garden of Eden. God made all things good. It wasn't an evil tree to contemplate. Adam and Eve were called to know good and evil by restraint. Not indulgence. It wasn't that God didn't want them to know. But he wanted them to know from the perspective of good. Not from the misery of evil. But the serpent is always the great ape of God. Who apes God in all ways. And he will take the pure beauty of word. And will twist it. and Make it destructive. And you need to understand. And I have to understand that that's part of our sin and destruction. And we ought to fight against it. And we ought to remember that words matter. And words matter because your life is in the Word of God, in Christ Jesus. Your Savior is the eternal Word of the Father. And therefore, just as you are called to be holy even as He is holy, so your tongue is to be holy even as He is holy. One of the great, most practical things that you can do when you're fighting against sin is to replace it with virtue. In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the thief that stole, that he not steal anymore, but rather, not only did he cease to steal, but that he worked hard. And he worked hard in order to be generous. That he ceases to steal and become a lawful giver. And in the very next verse, 
Ephesians 4.29, he addresses speech. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Instead of tearing down, make sure that your speech builds up. Now, it will build up harshly. There is a time and a place for judgment and correction. We are told that we need to seek reconciliation with our brethren that offend us. We are told not to cast our pearls before swine. We are told to magnify the glory of Christ and His law. But we nevertheless do that as fellow sinners, as those who are very much aware of the beam that are in our own eye. That we are not exalting ourselves over our brethren, but we're trying to build up the wall, the house of God, that all of us are a part of. So we guard our tongue by making sure that we are not only not giving expression to wicked, vain, unprofitable, dangerous words, but that our words are filled with praise. Our our words are filled with holiness. Our words are filled with that which encourages and builds up and prospers. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come in the name of Christ Jesus, the everlasting word. And we ask particularly this morning that you would sanctify our lips. That you would so work in our heart that our speech glorifies you. We ask that it's not the only thing that glorifies you. But we know that we are so often, I myself not least. We ask your Lord that you would sanctify us. That you would give us to be uh, profitable in our speech, that we would be dispensers of wisdom, of mercy, of holiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.